Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hello, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're talking about Chrysippus. Chrysippus is a Stoic philosopher from ancient Greece. He was born in 280 BC, died in 207 at age 73. He comes from Soli, a city in modern-day Turkey. Now, Chrysippus is from the Hellenistic period after Alexander the Great. And the city he was, in, uh, he was born in was held intermittently by the Ptolemaic Empire and the Seleucid Empire, both empires of the Diadochi, the successor generals to Alexander. But a lot of his career was, of course, spent in Athens at the Painted Porch, where the Stoa would meet, uh, the Stoics would meet to discuss their ideas. Uh, incidentally, he was also a long-distance runner. He ran a lot. He was into running. Uh, he was a student of Cleanthes, who was in turn a student of Zeno, the founder of Stoicism. So he's a third-generation Stoic. Now, people might ask, why are you doing Chrysippus? Why don't you do Zeno? After all, he founded the school. Well, Chrysippus is the one who really formalized a lot of the doctrines and gave them very precise and detailed form. And so a lot of the clearest and most precise arguments come down to us from Chrysippus. He had a huge amount of writing. Now, only fragments of the writing survive. There's you know, something like 70 books, huge number of books, but only fragments of the books survive. And a lot of what we have from Chrysippus comes down to us in other people's quotations of him, other people citing him or reproducing things that he is said to have said. So, of course, when we're relying on that stuff, we can't be entirely certain that those people are being faithful to the real Chrysippus. But he's cited an enormous amount of times because of his level of influence. So that's why we're starting with Chrysippus. Now, we'll start with the ontology. So for Chrysippus, only corporeal, physical things exist. But some abstract stuff can subsist, like time, place, or what the Stoics call sayables. Right? Plato's forms, however, are denied. They don't subsist, and they are not somethings, okay? So, we have a mostly physical materialist account here, but with some abstract stuff in the category of subsisting. Now, for Chrysippus, there are really two things, matter and eternal reason. Eternal reason acts upon matter, and its action upon matter is evident down to the smallest details. And this eternal reason is often framed as fate, right? Now, if fate is reasonable, then there is a kind of benign or benevolent quality to fate. So, eternal reason, if eternal reason is a kind of benign fate, I think that would be a way of getting across what Chrysippus is saying. Later Stoics use language like divine providence, and that's a later development on this original idea of a kind of fate that is structured by reason, right? But divine providence draws on 
other later ideas that are not necessarily evident in Chrysippus' original work. There is this notion of eternal reason. There is this notion of fate. But fate is different from, say, you know, medieval Stoic or, or a late Roman Stoic accounts of divine providence. Right? Uh, now, if everything is caused by benign fate, by eternal reason, then you might think, well, then we don't have any free will, right? We're not responsible for anything that we do because everything that we do comes out of this material system. Well, Chrysippus denies that our actions are caused entirely by benign fate because human souls are more proximate to our actions than eternal reason itself is. Now, this is a bit of a tricky argument. Chrysippus famously says that when a cylinder is pushed, the pusher starts the movement, but thereafter the cylinder assents to the movement and moves through its own force. So in this way, it's suggested that eternal reason kicks us off in doing something, but then we assent to what we're doing and continue it. Now, the trouble with that argument about cylinders is that it's not true. Newtonian physics literally doesn't work this way. So the argument is not likely to persuade us today because you know, cylinders do not assent to their own movement and choose to continue moving. Nevertheless, this is what Chrysippus argues. So it's important to lay it out. There are some further arguments. Soul is pneuma. It is the thing that holds the body together. This pneuma is said to be corporeal, but it exists after the body has died. For Chrysippus, the souls of the wise last until the next conflagration. So there's a, an idea here in ancient Stoicism of eternal recurrence, the idea that everything in the universe happens again and again eternally. The universe goes in cycles, and there are these conflagrations where the cycle begins again, right? So for Chrysippus, if the soul is the thing that holds the body together, the wiser the soul, the better the soul is at, at holding together and not dispersing, at resisting dispersal. So a wise soul will last until the next conflagration, whereas a soul that comes from someone who's, who's not so wise, uh, that kind of soul might disperse faster. The difficult thing here is that the pneuma is said to be corporeal, but it's not identified with the body. So where would you find it if it's corporeal? Right? That's another question that gets raised here. Uh, now, how do human souls give assent? How do we make decisions? Well, for Chrysippus, human souls have impressions of reality, but these uh, impressions only become motivational when we assent to them. We cannot even have a desire without first assenting to an impression that the thing we desire is desirable, right? Since it is only by reason that we give assent to the impressions that lead to desires, reason reigns supreme in the soul, and we freely choose not just what we do uh, with our desires, but we choose the desires themselves. So you can see in comparison to say something like Plato's account of the soul in the Phaedrus, where the soul is a charioteer that's constantly wrestling with horses. In this account, because we can't desire anything unless the soul assents to desire, there is no possibility of you know, parts of the soul leading it astray or, or uh, 
conflicting with reason. Now, of course, this has certain consequences for the ethics of the Stoics. So for the Stoics, eudaimonia, that is, you know, the happy life, it consists in living in accordance with experience of what happens by nature. Living in accordance with experience of what happens by nature. And that is the specific formulation Chrysippus uses. Different Stoics use different formulations of what eudaimonia consists in. That's the precise formulation in English uh, that Chrysippus uses. So for Chrysippus, since what is natural is the realization of benign fate, our attempts to resist what is natural stem from our having misunderstood the eternal reason that guides nature. The only things that are good on Chrysippus's account are the things that help us understand nature and our human nature and come to accept it. And for the Stoics, these are the virtues alone. The virtues help you understand nature and accept it. And everything else is not good as such. Other things that we might think of as good, like wealth or health, or health are for the Stoics preferred indifference. Things that are neither good nor bad. Okay? Even though they are neither good nor bad, they can be appropriate to us. For Chrysippus, wealth is appropriate to us, even though it is not good, insofar as we will tend to want to move toward it, i.e. we will tend to give assent to the impression that wealth is desirable. Okay? If we tend to give assent to the impression that wealth is desirable, we tend to do that because it really is the case that it is natural for us to prefer wealth. And so, recognizing that something is appropriate to us for Chrysippus is akin to using our reason in a way that aligns with nature, right? So, as we get older, we discover more things that are appropriate to us and the things that are strongly appropriate to us that we see again and again and again are appropriate to us that our reason causes us to continue to want to desire, to, to choose to desire. Those are the things that we take to be natural, to be in accordance with human nature. When we're young, we start by finding food and warmth appropriate then social relationships, and finally virtue itself, insofar as virtue is the thing which allows us to skillfully determine what's appropriate and what isn't, right? So virtue allows us to choose what will in fact happen, to agree with what will unfold, to find what will descriptively happen, to be normatively agreeable, right? If we have virtue, then we will choose what's going to happen anyway. Instead of trying to resist what's going to happen, when we see where things are going, we will decide to assent to where things are going anyway. Right? Think back to the cylinder. Things are going anyway. You're getting pushed anyway, whether you like it or not. So you'll choose to assent to the direction in which you're being pushed anyway. Because it's natural to go along with the way that the universe unfolds. And the reason for that is that, again, the universe is guided by eternal reason, by benign fate. So there's nothing bad about where it's going anyway, and therefore there's nothing to resist on this view, nothing to gripe with. Right? Experience is important for the Stoics because it's experience that teaches us how nature works to anticipate what will unfold and align ourselves with what does. So it's by experience that we come to understand eternal reason, right? And you see this in, say, 
you know, a lot of later medieval accounts where it's by experience that we come to know God or by science where we come to know God. That's a similar kind of idea. But notice it's eternal reason or benign fate here. It's not divine providence. So those who doubt our ability to learn from experience are suggesting that nature itself is ill wrought in some way and thereby denying the goodness of eternal reason or of the matter in which on which eternal reason acts. So say the Gnostics, the Gnostics in uh, antiquity, they make the argument that matter itself is bad, right? Now, if matter itself is bad, then the universe is ill wrought, which means that uh, there is no goodness to eternal reason or eternal reason doesn't exist or there's some kind of problem with the way that eternal reason interfaces with matter. Now, as you might recall, if you've heard our episodes on the Platonists, you know, back to the Timaeus episode, for the Platonists, the demiurge, the divine craftsman acts on a receptacle and the receptacle in some ways constrains the ability of the demiurge to realize the intelligibles in physical reality. Right. So on the Platonist account, it's not that matter is bad. It's that matter in some way is limiting and therefore the demiurge is not able to fully realize the good in the physical. And therefore, what you see in the physical can mislead you because not because it's evil or malevolent, but because the receptacle constrains the degree to which it can fully conform to the good. Right. The Gnostics claim that matter itself is evil, which is a further deviation from the Stoic position. So you see the difference there between the Stoic view that matter itself is entirely consistent with the unfolding of eternal reason, and therefore what happens in physical reality has to be okay because it is the unfolding of eternal reason. The Platonist view where there's a discrepancy, a kind of alienation between physical reality and what's good, and then the Gnostic view where physical reality is fundamentally wicked. Right? Those are three different attitudes that one might have in antiquity to physical matter. And I'm not saying those are the only three attitudes, but to give you a sense of what's distinctive about the Stoic position, we make the comparison. So here's a quote from Chrysippus that I think is particularly helpful. He says, as long as the future is uncertain to me, I always hold to those things which are better adapted to obtaining the things in accordance with nature. For God himself has made me disposed to select these. But if I actually knew that I was fated now to be ill, I would even have an impulse to be ill. For my foot, too, if it had intelligence, would have an impulse to get muddy. Right? If you know that you're going to be sick, then you ought to embrace being sick because getting sick is part of the unfolding of the universe, and the universe is unfolding through eternal reason, right? Through benign fate. So if you get sick, it comes out of benign fate, and therefore you ought to be disposed to get sick. Now, if you don't know that you're going to get sick, of course, being sick would be something that you would probably not prefer. And if you have a choice about whether you get sick, you know, a moment where you can take a course of action that might prevent you from getting sick, well, eternal reason will guide you through the soul's understanding of nature, to choose the things that will prevent you from getting sick, you'll choose health, right, if you have the choice. But if you're going to get sick anyway, then at that point, that's what fate has in store for you. That's what's natural. And therefore, on this account, you ought to accept it. So the foot 
endorses getting muddy, even though, of course, if it had a choice about getting muddy, it might choose to stay not muddy. That makes sense? I know it's a little tricky. Now, importantly for the Stoics, this includes suicide. Sometimes for the Stoics, it is our fate to kill ourselves. And when this happens, it is natural for us to do it, and we ought to have an agreeable attitude toward it. So especially with the Roman Stoics, you hear all these stories about people like, say, Seneca, who kill themselves, but do it in a, in a very agreeable way. They don't complain. They don't fuss. Uh, when it is their fate to kill themselves, they assent to the fact that this is what's going to happen, and they go along with it. Right? So our happiness consists in choosing that which is appropriate to our nature, not in our actually getting it, because the things that we are choosing are preferred indifference. They're not in themselves good. So it's good to have the virtue of picking the, being able to pick what is natural to us or appropriate for us. But whether or not you actually get the thing that you choose is up to, de, to benign fate, to eternal reason. And so if eternal reason sees fit to not give you the thing that you would try to choose, that just means that you didn't understand fully how eternal reason unfolds or how benign fate unfolds. And you should then adjust your attitude on the basis of what you do get. And that's the importance of saying that the preferred indifferent isn't itself good. What's good is being able to choose the preferred indifferent, right? Because this is a virtue ethics account. So it's not about getting the thing. It's about having the capacity to choose what is appropriate for a human being, what is natural to human beings. That's the idea. All right. If the things that are appropriate were good, that would suggest that our not obtaining these things is bad, and then when we don't get them, we would have grounds to be upset with the way that the universe is unfolding, and that would be to make a fundamental mistake, because that would be to suggest that the way the universe is unfolding is not good, which would be to deny the goodness of benign fate, the goodness of eternal reason, right? The Stoic sage, so the sage for Chrysippus is the, the person who is completely reasonable and has fully achieved virtue. The Stoic sage is happy even when he does not obtain the preferred indifference he selects. And this means there are no acts that for the Stoics are inherently wrong or unnatural. It is only the lack of virtue, the lack of capacity to choose that which is appropriate, to have the right attitude to nature that is bad. Opinion, doxa in Greek, is assent to false impression, right? So, as long as you're choosing what is appropriate or natural to choose, that's fine. And in different situations, different circumstances, it will be natural or appropriate to choose different things. It isn't always the case that you ought to commit suicide for the Stoics, but there are some situations in which suicide is the thing that you're going to do. And when you're going to do it, you're going to do it because you were moved by benign fate to do it. For the Stoics, nothing that happens can be bad because it's all guided by eternal reason. So if you are in a situation where you are going to commit suicide, then you ought to have a good attitude about it, right? And the same goes for everything else. Every action could, in the right circumstances, be what is natural or appropriate. Goodness is in being able to see how what is natural or what is appropriate applies in the situation. It's not committing to a list of actions that are good actions or a list of actions that are bad actions in a context in different kind of way.
And so this is you know, one important respect in which Stoicism is similar to Platonism. There is a sensitivity to context. It doesn't work through kind of hard, fast rules about these are the things you should do, these are the things you shouldn't do. Right? Sometimes things that ordinarily appear contrary to nature can be appropriate, can accord with nature in certain circumstances. Uh, the same also goes for killing for the Stoics. Sometimes it is appropriate in certain circumstances for Chrysippus to kill people, but only in those circumstances, and the virtuous person can distinguish those circumstances. Right? For the Stoics, all the virtues are unitary. To have one is to have them all, since virtues are just ways of getting at the ability to choose that which is appropriate. So all the different virtues, you know, temperance, prudence, they all have something to do with choosing that which is appropriate. So for the Stoics, they're all kind of the same thing. They're different ways into the same thing, the same capacity. Now, this has a lot of political implications, right? So one point that is made is that in the same way that we grow in our understanding of what is appropriate to us, we grow in our understanding of who matters, right? First, we think that our own survival is important. Then we realize that the survival of our offspring is important. And from there, as we gain more experience, we'll realize that human beings in a general sense are important. So some Stoics, make an argument for a kind of universal humanistic egalitarianism that we ought to select preferred indifference for others as well as for ourselves. And for this reason, Stoic ethics can be taken as a predecessor for liberal ethics, right? If we're choosing what's natural, not just for ourselves, but for others, now we have a universalistic notion of there being a human nature, a set of things that are appropriate for people that we can apply across the board in a kind of universal liberal humanism, right? And so Stoicism is sometimes framed as a predecessor for utilitarianism and Kantianism, even though it is not deontological and doesn't work in terms of, of hard, fast rules about how to behave. And even though it's not focused on pleasure, right? But like both of those views, Stoics regard human beings as having equal value from the point of view of benevolent fate, right? From the point of view of eternal reason. And Stoicism is focused around developing the capacity to select the preferred indifference. And of course, the preferred indifference are the things that have utility for human beings that accord with human nature. The utilitarian says that, you know, what is appropriate for the human being is that which gives pleasure, and what's inappropriate is that which gives pain. That's an account of what's appropriate. And the utilitarian argues that if you live through life and you experience life, you'll see that this is the case. So that the utilitarian is giving an account of what is a preferred indifferent from the point of view of a Stoic. And therefore, utilitarianism could be a kind of subsidiary view of Stoicism. You could frame utilitarianism in such a way that it could accord with Stoicism. Now, of course, you could also frame utilitarianism in an Epicurean way. And generally, when we talk about utilitarianism, we think about it as more similar to Epicureanism. But if you think about that which promotes utility as that which is a preferred indifferent, then there's a way of potentially bringing those things together and seeing them as connected. The emphasis that the utilitarian has on what is appropriate for human nature, what's appropriate to human beings, that is an emphasis that comes strongly out of the Stoic discourse. Along similar lines, if we are picking you know, the things we would choose if we could will that our choices be universal laws, 
if we're thinking about what's a preferred indifferent, not just for us as specific people, but for human beings in general, then we are acting as if we were choosing preferred indifference for everybody. There's a way of framing Kantianism also is similar in this universalistic, from this universalistic choosing point of view, right? You choose what you would will would be a universal law in Kantianism in the same way that in Stoicism, you choose for others that which would be a preferred indifferent for them on the basis that all human beings come out of benign fate, all human beings come out of eternal reason, and therefore what's appropriate to them is structured by the same single thing, the same single eternal reason, and therefore there's a strong likelihood that what's natural for you will be natural for somebody else. Right? Uh, another quote here from Chrysippus, runners in a race ought to compete and strive to win as hard as they can, but by no means should they trip their competitors or give them a shove. So too in life, it is not wrong for each person to seek after the things useful for life, but to do so by depriving someone else is not just. Now you see how this line here implies that the Stoics should be concerned not just for what's natural or appropriate for themselves, but what's natural or appropriate for other human beings on the basis that human beings are similar. So this feeds into an interpretation of Stoicism wherein it grounds universal egalitarian human reason, where we look at other people as humans who are equal to each other, qua their humanity, right? You could imagine a different interpretation of Stoicism that's more focused around, you know, oh, what's natural applies differently in different contexts for different people. And I think that would be a more, in many ways, a more defensible view from the standpoint of a particular person trying to use stoicism to live life, this idea that in different contexts, you may find different things appropriate, different things may be appropriate to different people. You know, that would be a kind of pluralistic way of taking this, but it's not the way it's generally been taken. The way it's generally taken, and there's some quotes in Chrysippus that lend support to taking it in this way, is that all human beings are subject to benign fate, are subject to eternal reason, and therefore what is natural to one human being is very likely natural to another human being. And therefore, you can choose preferred indifference for somebody else. And if you're more virtuous than someone else, then it might be good for that person uh, to, to have you, you picking. So the idea that we exercise freedom by accepting nature is also very similar to the idea that we exercise freedom by autonomously following the categorical imperative, right? So for Chrysippus, we're free insofar as we assent to what's going to happen anyway. We accept nature. We assent to nature. It's very similar to the Kantian idea that we are free insofar as we voluntarily, through our own reasoning capacity, choose to assent to the categorical imperative, right? And when we've done, and this is a ways back, but you know, a while back on the show, we did a whole set of episodes on the German ideal of freedom. The German ideal of freedom can be framed very much in terms of voluntarily accepting the law, voluntarily accepting uh, that which is given. Can be framed that way. The emphasis here is on getting the subject-given will to align with object-given nature, to get us to will what we're going to get anyway from nature, right? To both have natural law and to freely embrace it. Natural law comes out very much out of the Stoic tradition, right? If we 
have natural law and we embrace it, then what we will and what's going to happen are the same. And the principal Stoic idea is that those things can be the same, should be the same, and that for the happy person, they are the same. Now, Christopher Brooke, historian of political thought at Cambridge, sees some of this kind of thinking in Rousseau and in Hegel, and thus in Marxism. There is some benign natural principle that we must freely align ourselves with or identify with that is distinct from mere social convention, doxa, or opinion, right? There's some kind of natural principle that you're supposed to go along with as an alternative to just following whatever's cool, whatever's high status, whatever's popular, right? And it produces a politics that is both optimistic, fate is benevolent, it's guided by eternal reason, there's reason to think that things are going, either they're going to get better, they're going to be as good as they can be, right? And fatalistic, if you don't get the preferred indifference, you should embrace whatever you do get. So it's both optimistic and fatalistic. Often politicized Stoicism works by breaking the Stoic ethics off from the Stoic metaphysics, using the ethics in isolation or attaching it to other metaphysical schemes. So if you think all the way back to the beginning of what I've been talking about, initially with Chrysippus, this ethics comes out of a, a concept of benevolent fate or eternal reason. In a lot of medieval Stoic influence thought, divine providence is what's playing the principal role. God is what's playing the principal role. You can also replace God with capital R reason in an enlightenment sense, and that can be an ontology or a metaphysics that can then produce the same kind of stoic ethics. So what a lot of people will do is they'll replace the metaphysics with some other guiding benevolent force, some kind of guiding benevolent thing, whether it's history or reason, and have that thing structure physical reality in the same way that eternal reason or benign fate do in Chrysippus's original account. And this allows a lot of people who don't buy various aspects of Stoic metaphysics, who find the cylinder example upsetting in various ways, to try to adopt the same ethics and the same politics. But of course, there is something fundamentally frustrating about the, the Stoic account of free will because it's com compatibilist in an unsatisfying way. The suggestion that the, the thing that's guiding all matter kicks off all motion and then we assent to it. And because we assent, it continues, uh, doesn't ring true. And yet a lot of the political implications of the theory rest on that kind of claim. And that claim is there almost regardless of, of which thing you think is ultimately guiding reality, whether you think it's eternal reason, benign fate, divine providence, God, reason, history, whichever thing you put in the driver's seat, there's this question of how does that thing uh, allow for, uh, for free will? And if it doesn't allow for free will, you know, then that's another position you can have. Uh, because the ethics is so often broken off from the metaphysics, Stoicism can come back very easily again and again with different kinds of principles, benevolent principles, doing the work of kicking the thing off. So this gives it enormous durability in the history of thought. It's able to come back in different guises. People who don't like you know, the concept of God can substitute in something else, and that will get the Stoicism going. 
It's very durable intellectually. Now, of course, I've, I've gestured a little bit at a few of the critiques, but to lay out a few uh, here at the end of my opening discussion. Platonists are more suspicious of the body. They don't claim it's evil like the Gnostics do, but they regard it as alienated from the good. Chrysippus denies the possibility of a good that is non-corporeal. So for, in a way, this is a kind of first principle disagreement with the Platonists, and it makes it very difficult for much progress to be made in any kind of debate between the Stoics and the Platonists, right? You will see from time to time, uh, Stoic stuff get integrated into some middle or, or late Platonist accounts. You will see some... Uh, You'll see different ways of combining these things together. It does happen. But there is this fundamental difference between the Platonists and the Stoics that makes it very difficult for someone to have both of these kinds of views at once. Right? Aristotle argues for moderating the passions rather than fully controlling and, and extinguishing them. Right? And for Aristotle, the preferred indifference are good and often necessary for the development of virtue. So for Aristotle, you need leisure time and access to the right kind of education. And to get leisure time, you need to be in a city and the city has to have a slave system and so on. There's all these physical things that are necessary for virtue to kick off for Aristotle to develop the virtues. For the Stoics, it runs the other way. If you have the virtues, then you can cope with not having all of these preferred indifference. So there's a major difference there between the Aristotelians and the Stoics. Major difference. For Augustine, Augustine argues that pride, there's pride in likening the human soul to the divine and suggesting that the human soul has the same kind of relationship to reason that eternal reason itself, you know, that eternal reason is similar to human reason, right? And in denying man's propensity for sin, uh, you know, uh, Augustine takes the Stoics to be overly prideful and suggesting that we have the reasoning capability to, you know, if we polish it, if we refine it, always and everywhere resist sin by refusing to give assent to false impressions. For Augustine, that is uh, bigging up human beings too much, likening human beings too much to the divine. And you can also see that in, say, uh, Plato's Phaedrus with the chariot allegory. You know, for Plato, only the Gods have chariots that effortlessly course the heavens, never distracted by the horses. But for the Stoics, that's supposed to be possible for the sage, for the Stoic sage, who's supposed to be a human being. So for Augustine, you can only resist sin with divine grace. It's not enough to be reasonable. Uh, and so that, of course, is a popular critique of Stoicism that comes from the Augustinian tradition. Uh, there's also a critique from Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche says, according to nature, you want to live? Oh, you noble Stoics, what deceptive words these are. And supposing your imperative, live according to nature, meant at bottom as much as live according to life. How could you not do that? Why make a principle out of what you yourselves are and must be? Right? Uh, nevertheless, the idea of a single universal human nature that we know through experience and try to conform to via free choices is a powerful and seductive idea. It flatters our capacities for both freedom and knowledge. It is this flattering, the way it feeds human pride, that attracts both followers to Stoicism and critics, and makes it something that never goes away, but is also never fully embraced. It's always in the mix. So that's what I've got to kick us off. Alex, as you were looking through Chrysippus, what stood out to you? Um, 
Well, maybe going back to the pneuma, this idea of this element in our experience as something which is tensile, so it stretches. Um, maybe that that makes them sound a bit like a platonist in a way. Can you see why? Yeah, maybe? the difference there is that the pneuma has to be corporeal so that it can be said to exist in the thick stoic sense of existence, right? And of course, if there is such a thing as souls, it seems hard to argue that the soul is corporeal in the way that the Stoics suggest. So this becomes a continuing question. If everything has to be physical, then how do you make sense of the soul? Well, for the Stoics, you just insist that the soul is corporeal. And in ancient Greece, maybe it is. You can suppose that it might be, and people might buy that. But as you start looking for where's the soul, where's the corporeal thing, as you move forward into later and later centuries of scientific development, it gets hard to find the soul if you're going to define it as a corporeal thing. And so this leads a lot of Stoics to become atheists. It contributes to some of the changes in the metaphysics as time goes on. But I thought they kind of have, the, have it both ways because, for example, if Socrates is wise, the quality of being wise, they would know that that's something incorporeal. It's not a body yet they would refer to it as corporeal, as a body, because it's a cause. So it's like both at the same time. I don't know how that works, but yeah. Well, it's got to come back to something corporeal, because only the corporeal physical things can act. Uh, so the soul has to be corporeal so that it can be said to do things. But That's an issue with the, the metaphysics. But you could maybe find a modern interpretation and say, look, the... the the, neuro, the, the chemicals in the brain, I don't know. That's some kind of... It, it comes out as a quality when we look at it from a human standpoint, but from a more physical standpoint, it's a body. I, I, I haven't seen anyone try to make the argument that, uh, say, hormones and, uh, and the various uh, chemicals that human beings produce are pneuma. You, but you could see how someone in ancient Greece might think that they might be. Or might try to say, maybe this is the pneuma. One of the interesting differences between the Stoics and a lot of other Greek schools, the Stoics believed that the seed of intelligence in the soul was the heart rather than the brain. Probably because the heart quality is it's, it's more the actual ethical decision it takes place in the heart. It's something which is more felt. than Yeah, the idea is that that's where you feel what you feel. That's where you know, something strikes you ultimately as either something you should give assent to or something not, that it's a feeling in your, in your heart, in your chest, in your gut, rather than in your head. Yeah, and... And, of course, we know that that is not true, but it is, again, an interesting window into how the Stoics are thinking about human decision-making. It, it's not true, maybe, from physics, but from just subjective experience, phenomenology, a lot of religious... Yeah, it seems true. Okay, Yeah. Yeah. I guess because impulses are basically the whole basis of their moral psychology. It's like, that's what, yeah, more so than in Platonists. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, much more so than Platonists. Hmm. Okay, but you say that some people are more virtuous than others and can kind of act for them, but I think you might have covered this, but if someone isn't yet a sage, then they're going to be as ignorant as even evil people. Anyone who falls short of that finish line, even if you're slightly closer to the finish line of being a sage, you're not actually, you don't have knowledge. You might have, say, cognitive impressions, which 
I don't know, it's a very high standard, um, but you don't have a systematic, you know, collection of those impressions to count as knowledge. So you're equally ignorant. It's quite radical. Yeah, for the Stoic, the, the way the soul learns over time what to give assent to and what not is experience. Right? It's just by having experience, you get this. So for Aristotle to get the virtues, you need this whole extended process, which requires a city structured in particular kinds of ways. Similar thing for Plato. To produce, you know, virtuous guardians, you need a whole social system structured in particular ways to give people certain kinds of valuable pedagogical experiences. Not the case for the Stoics. For the Stoics, just by living life, you will come to understand what you ought to prefer and what you shouldn't. Now, uh, this leads you to eventually come to value virtue itself, because at some point in your life, you're supposed to realize that if you really want to be able to get the preferred indifference right and, and choose them reliably, you need the virtues themselves to do that. And so experience itself is supposed to teach you about the importance of virtue. And then once you recognize that virtue is important, then you realize that virtue itself is a preferred indifferent that you ought to choose. Now, virtue is good. In the sense that if you, it is the one thing that you ought to select that is itself good. So it's not just a preferred indifferent. I, I kind of misspoke there. But uh, you move from initially things like food and warmth, which are clearly preferred indifference, the right kinds of, of positive social relationships, friendships, uh, you know, parenting, mentor relationships, and so on. And then you realize that the thing that really you ought to choose is virtue. It's not just a preferred indifferent, but the thing that is itself good. And so once you get to the point where you realize that, then every time you have an opportunity to make a choice for the Stoics, you'll choose whatever allows you to acquire more virtue. And that's something you're supposed to get to just by living life. There isn't some kind of, of developed uh, pedagogy. And in that respect, Stoicism can look less political insofar as it doesn't clearly embed ethics in the way the city is structured and the way that Platonism and Aristotelianism do. Um, however, there are major political consequences stemming from the view, like I outlined in the back half of my little opening talk. Like, for example, you wouldn't care so much about what actions are ethical or not, just whether you have a kind of soul that can respond to survival situations well, the preferred indifference, and based on that, that's virtuous. And that's how you judge someone, not by their actions, but just by their internal nature. So in a court of law, maybe you might just say, oh, this person's character uh, is, a, is a sign of virtue as opposed to that. If you, if you have the capacity to select the preferred indifference, right? If you have a, the capacity to act in accordance with nature and choose the things that nature suggests are the things that you ought to choose, uh, then that is itself virtue on this account. Uh, now, you can imagine ways of, of trying to lock all of this down in the law. If it really is the case that all human beings are equal to one another before benign fate or eternal reason, then all people, for all people, the preferred indifference will be the same. In that case, you can make big universal laws about what people should do if you're running the state, if you are a stoic politician. You can make big universal laws that mandate that people choose the preferred indifference. Right, that mandate that the legal system operates in a way that selects preferred indifference. So the law then can come to reflect natural law insofar as the law can express the understanding of the sages of the natural law. 
right? Of course, if everybody is able to learn over time to value virtue on the basis of experience, then there's no reason why it shouldn't be possible for everyone to quest after sagehood. So this can lead into a, a more egalitarian, democratic type of stoicism that we might associate with Rousseau, in which it's suggested that every person has a kind of potential in by nature to be virtuous. After all, every person's soul is endowed by benign fate, by divine providence, by etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right? So every person on, say, a Rousseauian account is able to align themselves with nature in this way. And that's why for Rousseau, natural man is good. Yeah. And the socialized man is in some way alienated from that and has to find his way back. And in later Stoicism, I guess, if you want to access the divine reason, it's not in nature so much because it, it gets higher than that and more transcendent into a god. So you don't look to natural law, you look uh, to but, escape. But the god, the god acts on nature, on matter. So you understand eternal reason by experience, by experiencing what is going on in physical reality, because every single aspect of what occurs in matter has its roots ultimately in eternal reason. So therefore, anything that happens has got to be rationalizable. True, but Even if you can't understand exactly how, you've got to, uh, on this account, embrace it. They would still care about the natural, but I thought this idea of natural kinship kind of got abandoned over time, well after Chrysippus, um, with Christianity. And it was more about, yeah, a transcendent kind of divine, which required you to get out of the natural a little bit and well, you know, become an ascetic or something. This, well, this is in part, once you start treating Stoicism as one among many influences in the medieval period, right? Uh, the Stoic influence on Christianity is significant, but it has to run alongside an Augustinian critique. So for Augustine, opposing Stoicism was very important because for Augustine, Stoicism is a doctrine of pride and pride is the big sin that causes all the others, right? Pride is the very, very bad sin. So for Augustine, it was important to frame Stoicism as an atheistic or pagan doctrine. Now, of course, you'll have Stoic Christians who frame the Christian God as the thing that ultimately structures everything, and who will put, it, by doing that, will try to frame Stoicism as compatible with Christianity. But those people are always competing with a more Augustinian strand of Christian thinking, which is highly critical of this idea that the human being's soul is akin to the divine, or that human beings have the ability to reliably choose on the basis of reason what they ought to be doing or what, how they ought to be living, uh, and which instead subordinates that to church teaching and it emphasizes that no matter how much you study, you are always human and always prone to original sin and therefore constantly in need of divine aid, of, of grace, right? So, you're going to see those things competing with each other in the Middle Ages. And so you're going to see people borrowing from Stoicism, but trying to guard against Augustinian critiques. It, it's quite unfair, maybe, because it's not like the Stoics. Well, if you changed your ascent often, then you weren't a sage. 
And it's not like you could even pretend to be close to Logos or God or divine reason. So, yeah, because they set the bar so high, most people would have been, yeah, taking part in opinion, not knowledge. So they're not, I don't know why Augustine would need to fend off and say, oh, look, they're, they're playing God. Well, so this is a, you know, one of the tricky things when you look at something like uh, you know, the, the Hellenistic schools. One of the questions that you have is whether to view this in an egalitarian way or through a kind of hierarchy of levels of virtue. So a lot of Platonists and Aristotelians will frame the virtues as kind of processional or something you acquire in a sequence. And then there are some people who are higher and some people who are lower. And there's some of that in Stoicism insofar as the sage is higher, right? But... You know, for the for Plato, there are different kinds of souls. People have different kinds of souls with different levels of capacity. For Aristotle, some people are natural slaves. Some people don't have the complete reasoning ca capability, and other people do, but only if it's actualized through a social process, right? So, in Platonism and Aristotelianism, there's much more overt and obvious ground for taking it in this hierarchical fashion, where some people are higher, some people are lower. The thing that attracts a lot of modern Enlightenment liberal thinkers to the Stoic tradition is that there's more possibility in Stoicism for framing it as egalitarian. And that's not to say that there aren't some Platonists who make the argument that say, you know, as Plotinus does, every soul has a foot in the realm of the intelligibles, or as Iamblichus does, no soul has a foot in the intelligibles, and all souls sit underneath that. But with Stoicism, it's possible to argue that all human souls emanate, you know, are coming from the same eternal reason, are coming out of, are created by, are structured by the same eternal reason, which is fundamentally benevolent and benign, and therefore the same potential for sagehood would rely in all, uh, would reside in all the souls. And if it just takes experience of life to come to understand nature and come to understand preferred indifference, then it's much easier for a person to become ethical. Ethics is made much more immediately accessible to people than it is in a Platonic or Aristotelian tradition in which the society has to be just so, and then only the people who are in the class that gets all of the things are able to become virtuous people. So it's a major, there's a major difference there potentially in how amenable Stoicism is to the idea of, uh, of a universally accessible virtue. Not to say that there aren't ways of trying to make Platonism or Aristotelianism compatible with a more widespread access to virtue, but Plato and Aristotle are constantly emphasizing the impediments to virtue, the difficulty of obtaining it, and they're constantly trying to say that if you think it's too easy to get virtue, then you're indulging in, in, a, in opinion. That the people who frame virtue as too easy to get are sophists who want to seduce you into thinking that they have a quick and easy solution. But actually, you have to very carefully structure the society. And even then, lots of people in the class that gets the things that are supposed to equip them for virtue, lots of them will still fail to end up virtuous. You know, even in Calipolis, in the beautiful city, some of the people who get the guardian education still fail to acquire the virtues or don't acquire them in a sufficient degree that the city begins to degrade. So for, for Plato and Aristotle, even if you do absolutely everything right, there's still this constant propensity to have things go wrong. And you see some of that in Augustine. Augustine's version of Christianity is a little bit more similar to the Platonic insofar as there's this constant emphasis on the imperfectibility of man. 
on, on the fact that you can't get all the way there. The Stoics, on the other hand, frame virtue as something you can get just through life experience. And if you can just get it through life experience, then anybody who has a soul of the, of the same kind can potentially get to the same place. Because in, on a practical level, your desires are cognitive or rational as opposed to having some platonic, irrational, competing element. Right. Whatever desires that you have given assent to, uh, it's through your reason that you gave assent. So it's not as if you have a reasoning power that has to be cultivated or developed. It's not as if the charioteer needs to be made strong enough to control the horses. If you've given assent to the wrong desires, you just need to be shown that you've made a mistake and then your reason will take care of it. You just need to have an experience that will show you that you've made a mistake and then reason can correct in future the desires that you embrace. Now, maybe the experience that could prove that could be the courage of the Stoic sage who doesn't need to change their ascent, even when they face very difficult or even torturous situations. And then based on that, they could- Right. So, yeah, one of the Stoic arguments would be that if you have an encounter with a sage, the sage can help correct you in your behavior. And you see, we talked in the Artha Shastra uh, episode about the wandering ascetic who you know, shows you how to live. And through this encounter with the wandering ascetic, you are improved, even though you're an ordinary householder who doesn't have access necessarily to the higher forms of spiritual education. An encounter with this wise person is meant to give you potentially a spiritual breakthrough, allow you to live your life better. And there are all these little stories about the, he, this person went and they met the sage and the sage said this to them or did that with them. And then, oh, they realized that they should live better, Right. All the sage does is show that you have chosen the wrong thing to desire and made you realize that you ought to desire something else instead. And then if stoicism works, then your reason will allow you to just make the switch and choose the thing that you ought to be choosing. So, yes, there's an emphasis on the sage's kind of ability, I think, to affect that kind of change in people through example. But also, just if you have the experience that preferring something or desiring something doesn't work out for you, that on this account should allow you to change what you're doing. It's not as if uh, you get addicted or you get ensnared by a desire and, and enslaved by it. Reason cannot be enslaved by desire on the Stoic account. So on the Stoic account, you can't really be addicted to something. You can only be mistaken about what you ought to prefer. And you'll see a lot of, you know, the kind of ordinary online Stoics. Stoics are very popular on the internet because they tell you how you, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in society, it's very easy and straightforward for you to become a, a more virtuous person. You just have to realize that these things that you think are good for you aren't, and these other things that you haven't realized are good for you are. Loads of lifestyle gurus who, who do this, who go, people think, you know, modern people, they think this, this, and this are good for them, but actually these other things are good instead. And it's an appeal to your reason. You've been choosing the wrong preferred indifference because you don't have enough life experience, young man. But me, an older, you know, wiser man, you know, cough, Jordan Peterson cough, uh, can show you what it is that you actually ought to desire. But what, yeah, That's kind of how it works. Maybe they are talking about addiction, though, because the preferred indifference, it would be as simple as saying success, uh, failure, praise, blame, sickness and health. These kind of opposites, right? If you're caught up in desiring any one of them, you're likely to get addicted to one of them and just look at your experience, check it out, see how it just goes nowhere. And then, yeah, it would be a, it wouldn't, you wouldn't even need the example of the sage. You could just promulgate a law code that says 
But if you're falling into one of these, that's an error. Would it be that simple? Or? Well, you, you could potentially try to make it fit. The trouble is that the idea of addiction itself suggests that your ability to reason can be messed with by something that you consume, right? Which suggests that the thing that you consume is itself bad because it affects your reason. But the pure stoic argument is that only virtue or the lack thereof affects your reason and that all of the other stuff is preferred indifference. And therefore, the physical stuff that you either get or don't get can't be good or bad for you. So on the original account that Chrysippus is giving, it's hard to see how you could be addicted to something. But what about the spinning top? I thought it's in your nature to kind of keep going, even though you understand that, well, yeah, you don't, like the, the first push isn't up to you, but then after that, you can't stop yourself. Your reasoning can't stop itself. Yeah. And that's- Well, you can of- only give assent to that, which is already going to happen anyway, right? Now you could imagine so- someone who goes, well, I'm- I find that I really like heroin and I can't stop myself from taking heroin. So I ought to just give assent to this continuing spiral of me taking heroin because, you know, clearly it must be appropriate to me because I continue to choose it. Now, of course, none of that is true, but it's hard to see how on a pure stoic account you deal with something like that. You know, how do you deal with someone who goes, no, I have continuously preferred heroin and I've continuously chosen to take it? Hmm. Yeah. Because there isn't really an account of how your reasoning could be interfered with by a material object. Yeah, the the nature of the impression or the the nature of your soul. One of those two. Well, but see, because the whole all of matter is guided by eternal reason, the pure Stoic has to argue that matter cannot be structured in a misleading way, Uh, that there has to be something fundamentally honest about the universe because it's constructed by benign fate. And once you start to argue that the universe is deceptive, why would the universe be deceptive if it's, you know, constructed by a benign force? Uh, if, and this is where you start to get into some of the meteor disagreements that they have with the skeptics. The skeptics will point out all sorts of different ways in which impressions can be confusing and misleading. And the Stoic originally, in you know, the Chrysippus account, wants to say that because the universe is benign, it's fundamentally not confusing. By and large, it's not meant to mislead you or lead you astray. Except for the fact that, although earlier you talk about how the physical world could be a kind of, um, you know, how in the Timaeus and Plato, it's like collateral damage. The demiurge has to work with limitations. But in one of Chrysippus' works on war, I think he talks about like a Thomas Malthus-style argument where an apparent evil is actually a good when you look closer up. You know, war drains all the surplus of people, that kind of thing. Right. This is the Panglossian tendency in Stoicism. If something happens, and it happens all the time, and people seem to pick it all the time, then there has to be some kind of reason to their picking it. And so this also can limit the degree to which a Stoic can agitate for major political change. The Stoic can argue that we ought to pick the stuff that's natural. And the Stoic who is in a political position can try to pick the stuff that's natural a little bit more reliably or more regularly than someone else might. But the Stoic is not going to have the view that lots of things that happen all the time are unnatural or or unacceptable or not okay, generally speaking. because of this tendency to view whatever happens all the time as part of nature. So there's a limit on how radical Stoicism in practice tends to be. Now, that said, 
there are some radical thinkers who are influenced by Stoicism. Rousseau would be chief among these. And, but part of the way this works is that you have to break the Stoicism off from the original metaphysics, because if you're dealing with something like benign fate or divine providence or eternal reason, it's very difficult to position almost anything that happens as unnatural. But if you have a concept of nature that is uh, secularized to some degree or put in relation to a concept like reason or history, and you argue, say, in a kind of Hegelian way, that there's a, a, a dialectical unfolding of the thing where there are kind of negations, if you put it that way, then it becomes possible to have kind of these unnatural or counter-revolutionary moments or periods or experiences within an overarching process that is leading somewhere. You, know, you can have a, a setback in the unfolding of, say, the Marxist theory of history without the theory itself being defeated. And so it becomes possible to speak of attempts briefly for some periods of time to defy the natural. And that is what we see in a lot of the Enlightenment versions of this, is this, this notion that we can break with the natural or try to defy the natural, but that we pay a price for doing that. And that ultimately those defiances cannot hold over time. And that the contradictions between our behavior and the unfolding of the principle uh, will eventually come to a head and lead to some progression. I might be completely misunderstanding, but does it relate to the Stoics seeing uh, the main category of reality or specifically being as being something particular and not like a universal, like a platonic form? Does it relate to that at all? Like it's a... <laughs> Well, I, I wouldn't say that it's not universal. Uh, it's just that for the Stoic, what is being is the universal insofar as eternal reason acts on matter. That's the fundamental relation that structures everything else. So for the Stoic, you know, instead of saying that everything that exists exists in some degree, like the Platonists will say, that everything that exists exists only to a point. Right. So for the for the Platonist, what really exists, the thing that has the most existence is the good itself. And then everything else, you know, the, the set of forms are less true, less real than the good itself. So the, the virtues, different concepts, you know, the form of this or that, you know, the, the ideal this or that. It's not the good itself. It's a little bit alienated from that. So it's a little bit less real for the Platonist. And then you go down into physical things, right? So there's the good, and then there's the good chair, and then there's actual physical chairs, and then there's artistic representations of chairs. And as you go all the way down, you aren't dealing with things that don't exist, but you're dealing with things that for the Platonists are less real, because reality is furthest expressed in the good itself, and everything else is, is down a scale of, of being from that. So the things that would strike the materialist as most obviously having being for the Platonists are a ways down the scale. The Stoics, because they are more materialist in their inclination, will say that matter itself contains in even its small details the pure evidence of eternal reason working. Right? So instead of matter is alienated from the good and many stages down from it and therefore potentially a misleading representation of form, the Stoic says, 
in matter you see the details of nature realized and therefore matter is is straightforwardly informative it's not misleading it's not deceptive physical reality for the stoic is not misleading or deceptive to accuse it of being misleading or deceptive is to indict benign fate to indict god to indict eternal reason does that make sense i don't uh... Have you heard about the growing argument and all that stuff where they have these weird entities and, you know, the fact that it can grow or change means that it endures over time. I don't know. And these kind of imaginary cases where, you know, if you join two people together and, I don't know, cut one of their legs off or something, like, yeah, who was there before and after? I don't know. Yeah, so there are attempts in Stoicism to make sense of, of Numa and to make sense of this pulling together concept, right? So if you're going to say that, uh, that Numa is corporeal, what, what does Numa do? Well, it, it pulls things together. It holds things together. It's, and it expands. Yeah. But also then it can disperse. So there's got to be these physical things that pull together or disperse. Now, of course, today we might say, you know, gravity or the strong nuclear force, or, breath. or the weak nuclear force, you know, you know, or breath, or, you know, we have names for some of the different forces in the physical reality that cause things to hold together or to pull apart. But if you're dealing with the Stoic account, you're dealing with an account that is trying to make sense of that in the absence of those concepts. And to say, oh, it's the soul that does this, gives you a physical account of the soul, which allows you to situate the soul neatly and firmly in the rest of the ontology. Not the soul, but the rational part of it. Because the soul is just any kind of desire or impulse which animals have. And then the rational part is the kind of... Uh, well, it's... Then, hang on, that, that would mean the, the rational part... The soul, the soul is reasonable. It's the impression. So the impression that comes in... The, the reason that's in the soul then assents or doesn't assent. And the better the soul that you've got, the better the soul is at figuring out which impressions to assent to and which not to assent to. At one point, it's argued that impressions that are those you ought to assent to have a certain quality about them that is assent worthy. Of course, then you have to ask, well, what's the quality? How, how would you know what the quality is? It kind of kicks the discussion just another step. But this is the difficult thing. Ultimately, the Stoic argument comes down to this premise, and it's a difficult premise to do without, that the universe is fundamentally structured by some kind of good thing. Some kind of good thing has structured the universe, so you're not going to be lied to or misled or manipulated regularly. And therefore, all you have to do is acquire a little bit of virtue. And if you acquire the virtue, you'll be able to distinguish between what you should prefer, what you shouldn't what you should assent to, what you shouldn't assent to. Uh, it relies on the universe being fundamentally not that inhospitable a place. Do you think compared to people who would, say the Epicureans uh, are competing against the Stoics for followers? Yes. Not actually looking at what the arguments say, but just at the fact that the Epicureans are more atheists maybe, and the Stoics tend to support any kind of belief in God, whether it's poly or pan or a monotheist, that would immediately attract followers. Not so much the reasons for it, but just the fact that, hey, the Stoic is the camp where I can be a, a believer. I'm going to join them. 
And then that's how you get this whole metaphysical stuff where, oh, there's fate and providence and all that. But it just comes down to do they believe in God first or God's. Well, yeah, I think it's not as if the Epicureans were totally uncompetitive. They had their, their followers and you know, Epicurus takes up the atomism of D- Democritus and he does all right. Uh, and the skeptics, of course, are another school during this period. So one thing to bear in mind is that in ancient Greece, religion is not so thoroughgoingly uh, established in the ways that we might think of it in, in medieval times under, say, medieval Christian churches. There are you know, accounts of the gods. There are accounts of fate. There's accounts of how these things relate, but there are lots of different accounts and lots of different things that you can potentially do with the gods in your account that aren't totally incompatible with um, religion as pagans might understand it. There's a lot of variety. When Julian the Apostate in the, the Roman Empire, the Emperor Julian tries to save paganism from competition with Christianity, he does this by trying to organize a great big pagan church a pagan religious organization that's empire spanning that organizes and disciplines the huge piles of different pagan doctrines the thing to bear in mind is that you know without that kind of organization paganism is very multifaceted there are many different strands and and ways of playing with it so uh, yeah in in the timaeus you Plato is able to to say, well, this story of how the universe came about is just as good as any other one you might tell. And that doesn't make people go, oh, my God, atheist, atheist. Uh, There's a lot of different views that people may have during this period. And it's not as if uh, you're going to be strung up for being an Epicurean. Yeah. And I guess Chrysippus uses so many different types of arguments for God, like, oh, everywhere people have religion or... Oh, there's design. Oh, atheism is unacceptable. So I guess it's a a mix. Yeah. And the reason he's got to make those arguments is that he does engage with skeptics and Epicureans and so on who have different views. He engages with people from the academy who have different views. There's a lot of different things going on. Now, it's often true in these Greek cities that the followers of the different groups uh, have a little bit of a negative attitude toward one another and are rude about one another and say rude things about one another in their works. But they do live in the same cities and they are able to get along. You don't have uh, large numbers of discussions of philosophers murdering each other in the streets. That doesn't happen routinely. There's a level of plurality here. So, yeah. Epicureanism has a hard time, I think, in the Middle Ages playing the kind of role that, uh, say, Aristotelianism or Stoicism or Augustinian variations of Neoplatonism. uh, It has a harder time competing in that period. But it also, because it's it's, uh, less thoroughgoingly religious, it has an easier time getting taken up in the Enlightenment and later. Uh, and for that reason, I think sometimes people understate the influence of the Stoics. You know, there's everybody can make a firm distinction between the Scholastics and you know, the Epicureans, you know, the churchy version of Aristotelianism that you get in the Middle Ages and um, you know, more atheistic, more thoroughgoingly um, 
uh, irreligious doctrines. But Stoicism very smoothly transitions from being a very religious view to a view that's very much compatible with Enlightenment-style capital R reason. It makes that move pretty seamlessly, you know, given that it starts with something like benign fate. It's kind of, uh, and that's one of the strengths of, of Chrysippus's original formulation, because Chrysippus doesn't say uh, at every point and every time, God, divine providence. It's possible to interpret Chrysippus's position through the lens of benign fate, through the lens of eternal reason. And then, of course, eternal reason can become enlightenment reason. Well, and so it becomes possible to port this. Maybe you could scale it down to the individual as well. Chrysippus didn't always talk about the whole cosmic natural order. He also said, oh, there's webs yeah. of causes. Oh, this is a great point. Yeah. One of the things that's really distinctive about Stoicism is that Stoicism really, really makes an effort to preserve a space for the individual operating independently from society, uh, able to be virtuous without political or social conditions. Now, this is going to be very attractive also in the Enlightenment period, because as capitalism gets going and the market and industrialization and so on, you get start getting these modern societies in Benjamin Constant's sense, right? You're looking for some kind of account of how you can have uh, virtuous politics without the kinds of heavily designed political systems that we see in the Middle Ages, in antiquity, these you know very carefully constructed virtue-producing machines of the scholastic tradition and uh, the academy. And one of the advantages of Stoicism is that Stoicism gives an account of how you can get virtuous behavior without a bunch of elaborate political mechanisms. And so when you're constructing a market society, Stoicism is an attractive tool for building that out because it allows you to give an account of how you can have virtuous moral behavior in a society where social relations and economic structures have not been designed to promote that, but have instead been designed to promote economic growth. But they do it so well that maybe they leave enough space for the individual to, in Jordan Peterson's words, I don't know, not his words, the idea, take care of their own house before they start engaging in any kind of campaigning or activism for other issues, because it takes care of the yeah, the economy. So you see what I'm saying? It gives them that space well, to take care of their own. Yeah. If, if it works, right? If Plato and Aristotle are right, that our capacity to be virtuous depends very much on the further conditions. If that's the case, then telling people that they can get their own house in order without engaging with the further conditions leads them down a bit of a blind alley. Wait, so, so it really depends on whether it actually is the case. You know, how, does you, how do you actually become a good person? is a really important question in the history of political theory. Because if you could become a good person by getting your own house in order through any, any form of experience, however common, if that's the case, then it's very easy for people to sort out how to live, even under societies that are not at all designed to help them figure it out, right? Conversely, if it's really difficult to become a good person, and most people suck, most people don't get there, then you need to have a very carefully designed society to make it possible for any substantial number of people to become good, virtuous people. And so uh, this is a question that I think is really underplayed in the history of thought is how much do you need? What are the prerequisites for becoming a decent human being? And 
uh, how much does the design of the community affect that? For Plato and Aristotle, it has an enormous effect. You cannot do without the polity. For Aristotle, man is a political animal, and outside the city, beast or god, right? The Stoic says you can be a god, that you can outside the political community, regardless of what preferred indifference you get, have the virtues. For an Aristotelian, that's to say that you can act like a god, that you can act in a way that's independent from the particular circumstances in which you're caught up. And that's the Augustinian critique of it being a prideful doctrine in assuming that you can just... uh, develop these virtues in this way. Now, the thing is, the attraction to something like Stoicism from a a kind of libertarian socialist standpoint is it suggests that it's very easy for the ordinary worker to become virtuous enough to to engage in politics. Because if virtue is easy to get, if political and ethical skills are easy to acquire, then it's very easy for ordinary people to get involved in politics. And the fact that they've been kept out of politics is just... uh, you know, a, a power play by the rich and by the oligarchs and has no basis on whether they're actually capable, right? So the critique that a lot of those Enlightenment era Stoic influenced philosophers would have of the Platonic tradition, the scholastic tradition, is that it creates an excuse to deny political power to the ordinary person, right? But coming the other way, if virtue is really easy to get, then you don't actually have to give the worker the things that they would need in Plato and Aristotle's account to become good. So you're able to stop. You give them the vote. You give them political participation. Then you expect them to figure it all out on their own. You don't have to then give them the sophisticated types of education that have to be given to people in a Platonic or Aristotelian account. So what happens with this kind of liberal stoicism is you give everybody the vote, you give everybody the right to participate because everybody's a human who's got a soul that can learn from experience, but you then don't have to give them the prerequisites necessary to fully develop in something like a Platonic or Aristotelian sense. You cut them loose and expect them to, just over the course of living life, figure it out on their own without any further guidance, without any kind of institutional support. And so... There's a sense in which Plato and Aristotle are more right-wing than the Stoics, but also a sense in which they're more left-wing than the Stoics. For Plato and Aristotle, if you want everybody to be virtuous, well, then you'd have to make sure that they all got all of the things that they would need to do that. And that's a very thick list of things. So you'd have to give people an awful, awful, awful lot of things. If you have the Stoic position, it's easy to get everybody in because the bar is much lower. Lower, but it's still not easy for the individual to go through that struggle and they would still reject that they're, they're becoming godlike because, I don't know, Peterson often refers to the Bible. So you're supposed to submit to that, not try and impersonate that. Well, Peterson, like a lot of people who have a, a certain amount of influence from this, plays around with the relationship between this and other people's metaphysics, right? Because this kind of stuff, and I'm not saying that Peterson is a pure Stoic, I'm not trying to get too... Uh, I don't know. Digressed into Peterson. But you know, let's just say the contemporary person who pushes stark philosophy on the internet, that person is very content to wed it up to whatever kind of metaphysics will get you off the ground on this. And Christianity, insofar as it's a you know features a benevolent God, gives you a metaphysics that is ready to 
be combined with this. And so for the Augustinian Christian, this is something to look out for because it's an easy way of leading people down a path where they will think that they're able to do more without you know, being integrated into the church community. For the Augustinian medieval Christian, you've got to be integrated into the church community because it's only through the church community that you can in any way be protected from what you will otherwise, of course, do because your soul is corrupted by original sin, right? So the church community is important for helping you get divine grace. And if you think about the theurgy in Yamblichus, right? Going and performing the rituals and rites invites God in, which can potentially invite divine grace in to help you, right? But that has to happen in these settings that are set up by the church institution and the theurgists. They know what the particular kind of ritual is that will cause the divine presence to potentially, not, not cause, invite the divine presence to eventually come in, which may then mean that there's a bestowing of grace and an opportunity for people to you know, potentially sin less or, than they otherwise might. Uh, if you're a Stoic, then all of that stuff is excuse-making. The idea that you need a church or you need a group or you need this or that, it becomes excuse-making. You're supposed to be virtuous. Now, you might choose to become part of some sort of organization because you think becoming part of that organization would help you to acquire virtue. But you're only doing that because you already think that you have the reason to figure out which organizations help you get virtue and which, you, and which don't. It's because you think that you have the capacity to make those decisions. For the Augustinian, you don't have any capacity to figure out what religious organizations you ought to be part of. Uh, and if you think that you do, then you know, that becomes a kind of pride that can lead you into uh, you know, heresy, into choosing uh, on the basis of whatever pleases you. And those things can easily be confused because for the Augustinian desire can easily wear the mask of reason and pretend and masquerade as reason. And so these are fundamental differences here. And, you know, it's I think it's still a very important question whether we ought to approach uh, the process of becoming a good person in the Stoic way or in something like the Platonic, Aristotelian or Augustinian way. But because it's still this question comes up all the time, even among people who don't think that they're using any of these terms or thinking in any of these frames. Stoics would still say that the senses of all these individuals who we have to give some power to to decide, they're still unreliable senses. They're not able to. Well, the Stoic can't say that they're straightforwardly unreliable because for the Stoic, the senses are given to us by eternal reason. So the senses have to be reasonably you know, survival. reliable. Not for virtue, for survival. Well, that's the main... Well, uh, nah, you have to be able to on account of your reason. If you're talking pure Chrysippostoicism with none of the attempts to fudge it in response to the criticism, the original Stoic account is that eternal reason makes sure that you do have the capacities that you need to become a virtuous person. So you do have the capacity to judge whether something is something you ought to desire or not, whether it should be, a, whether it's a preferred indifferent or not, and what priority it has. You're supposed to have those. And the senses are, you know, it's experience by which you learn. So what, how do you experience through the senses? And it's all corporeal. So it's all in through the body. The, the, so there's no running away from that. I thought the learning is, the whole point is that it's a constant mistake process because the whole point is people judge the indifference incorrectly they constantly think that health life money yes. are worthwhile when they're not yes it, you certainly will make mistakes on the stoic account the experience 
of acquiring virtue is for the Stoics full of mistakes. Yes, sure. But it's still something that is supposed to be traversable by you through experience, irrespective of social structure. And that makes it much easier, as difficult as it is. I'm not trying to say that there aren't difficulties or obstacles in the Stoic virtue acquisition process. I'm not trying to say that it's just easy. You know, it's hard in its own way, but it's much easier in terms of the political and social demands it makes on the society and on the state. Much easier, which is why it fits so neatly within 19th and 20th century liberal paradigms. Because of that rational impulse being the whole basis of all their moral psychology and yeah, why people, how people can act and take control of their lives. It's, It's not institutional, it's individualized. And there's not an irrational, there's a rational basis. Right. All you need is, you know, and, and you start to get into 20th century accounts, you know, like Habermas, with if you have an ideal deliberation, you know, if you just make the deliberation good and allow reason to prevail, it gradually will. And even insofar as there are obstacles to the ideal deliberation, they will gradually be overcome through the process of discussion, because as you have discussion, reason will win. Even if the deliberation is imperfect, it will gradually remove the obstacles to its further realization. You know, Habermas is you know, very much this kind of street with a kind of unfolding reason process that overcomes any obstacles that happen to be in front of it, bootstrapping its way up to further and further levels of reason. Would Habermas include emotion as a kind of rational belief, a bit like Chrysippus? Maybe not the same thing, but Chrysippus said that at least they come together. They, they might be codependent. They might arise together. Emotions and reason beliefs. Well, so a lot of of, uh, liberals who borrow from Stoicism have tried to walk back some of the um, reason versus the passion stuff in Stoicism, the hard binary that's drawn between reason and passion, uh, with the Stoics saying that passion is not an independent force, that what you, you know, when people act as if passion is an independent force, they're making a mistake. So reason is the thing. It's not that the passions need to be disciplined by reason. It's that desire itself can only really, you can only have it once you've given assent to it. So it's entirely contingent upon reason and upon what reason picks. Um, you know, I think for a lot of people who have borrowed aspects of this thinking, that maybe takes the point a little bit too far. But you can see in the kind of pure enlightenment accounts, the emphasis of reason. Uh, if you look at Mary Wollstonecraft's work, it's very, very stoic. You know, this idea of, of reason being the thing which ultimately has to reign supreme and women needing virtue so that they can acquire that. You know, very much framing an expansion of women's rights in terms of getting these stoic capacities. And in this period, you know, I, I don't want to downplay some of the positive effects that this had in the 1700s on uh, causing people to think that maybe it might be possible for groups that were previously excluded from politics or from society to acquire virtue and and thereby to submit to reason. If you look at Aristotle's account, Aristotle says some people are natural slaves. Aristotle says women have incomplete reasoning capacity. Now, Aristotle's account was often used to put down women and what they could do. In Wollstonecraft's account, Wollstonecraft uses stoic ideas to make the case that women can acquire these virtues as well through experience. But Wollstonecraft also draws on the idea that women need access to education to get that done. And if you need access to education, that seems to rely a little bit on 
you know, there really being some level of scope for the social structure to impinge upon whether or not we become virtuous. It could be the same two things. It's like inner makeup, outer education, but just which order you put them in. Now, maybe it's a very low bar of education. Maybe a Stoic, you know, I think especially a more contemporary Stoic, would concede that you have to learn how to read. You have to learn how to do math. You have to learn how to do certain basic things, you know, and that those things might be necessary to acquire the virtues. But someone who's a Platonist or an Aristotelian would say that that's just the very, very beginning of the education that's necessary for virtue, that you need an awful, awful lot more over and above all that. You know, learning to read, it would not be enough. Uh, so I don't, you know, I, it's, it's a tricky one. Uh, you know, Stoicism has played a role in incorporating groups that have previously been excluded, but Stoicism also plays a role in uh, leading people to think that once they've included those groups, they don't have to do very much more for them after they've been included, that uh, mere inclusion itself is enough. Uh, so that's, you know, I want to recognize and acknowledge as we're about to hit an hour and a half, and we should probably be finishing up. I want to recognize and acknowledge the role Stoicism has played in causing people to question whether certain groups of people are fundamentally incapable of reason or fundamentally incapable of virtue acquisition. Stoicism has often played an important role in getting people to question those hard divisions drawn by theorists like Aristotle. At the same time, because Stoicism denies the importance to a substantial degree of social factors for unlocking virtue acquisition, it often produces a tendency to not do a whole lot for people once they've been included. You think about post-colonial people who you know, receive political rights, but then don't get a lot of help from their states to think about how to use those rights effectively, to advocate for themselves effectively. You think about different groups that have received the suffrage, but the state has been not particularly keen on then giving them access to robust forms of education that would allow them to put the suffrage to any kind of effective use. Uh, there is a radical tendency in Stoicism, but it, the same tendency in Stoicism that allows for the expansion of, of inclusion also prevents that inclusion from being as deep as it could be and from the uh it prevents the system from being as responsive to the people who are included as perhaps it could or should be so i guess that's kind of my 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 take and i think we'll leave it there so thank you guys so much for listening have a wonderful rest of the day bye bye